welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on in our museum. Today, you're listening to, well, me. My name is Sarah Nixon, public programmer here at the museum. I would like to begin by saying that we are recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, and that we honor and acknowledge that this land is part of the traditional territory of the Neutrals, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples and their allies, and is adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. This is the second episode in a Museum Chat Live series detailing the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. Over the course of this mini-series, I will speak with Des Corin, a longtime volunteer at the St. Catharines Museum and avid fallen workers researcher. We'll talk about various topics and issues regarding the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. In this episode, we explore the dangerous working conditions faced by laborers during the construction of the fourth Welland Canal. I do want to note that this episode was produced using primary source material as well as information shared in the Fallen Workers newspaper series published by the St. Catherine Standard. I will share these articles in the show notes, both on the museum chat blog as well as on our SoundCloud page. So with that, uh, let's get to it. the canal's construction, work safety standards were extremely minimal and unsafe working conditions were the norm. As a result, many of the deaths that occurred during construction were losses that could have been avoided. Today we share the harrowing stories of three fallen workers, Stana Benasho, William Burt, and John William Hawthorne, in an attempt to understand what led to these tragedies and also to consider how each of these could have been avoided. We begin with Stana Benasho, who died on September 19, 1914. Stana immigrated to Canada from Russia and was one of the earliest to find work on the canal. Sadly, however, little is known of his life. He died a single man and is buried in Victoria Lawn Cemetery in an unknown grave. What follows is a letter from the Welland Ship Canal Office of the Federal Department of Railways and Canals detailing his death. Department of Railways and Canals, Welland Ship Canal Office, September 29, 1914. Dear Sir, Following is a report of an accident which occurred at the Lake Ontario Phil on September 19th, by which one employee of Messrs. Baldry, Yerberg, and Hutchinson lost his life, and one other employee was seriously injured. On the morning of September 19th, a train of Kilbourne and Jacobs, 16 yard cars, loaded with clay from shovel number 7, arrived at the lake fill and was sent out to dump from the outer end of the trestle. To prevent cars from turning over while they are dumping off the trestle, they are chained down to the rail before dumping. The men putting on these chains work along the train on planks laid from bent to bent on the ends of the caps opposite to the side on which the cars are to be dumped. The men are thus able to stand alongside a car while it is being tipped. 
When this train was chained down and the air valve turned to dump the cars, three cars tipped to the opposite side that had been intended, discharging the content onto the plank platform on which the men were standing, and carried two of the men, S. Benasho and A. Maskeg, Russian Poles, into the lake. A. Maskeg was recovered from the water seriously injured, but S. Benasho's body was not found till five days later. After this accident, this train was examined and the cars dumped and righted under different conditions. But, in every case, the cars dumped as intended. In this way, the exact cause of the accident could not be determined. At this time, I'd like to invite Des Corin to the podcast. Des, could an accident like this happen today, or could it have been avoided? This accident was really all about working conditions at a dangerous work site. If you look at a map prior to the construction of the canal and look at the shoreline, look, go there today and walk the trail, you go like a mile and a half out into the lake. That's what happened in this case. They were actually building the two sides of the canal out. Trestles were built with a railroad on top, and what happened was the, the stone, the gravel, whatever, was put into a, a dump car. The dump car was pushed out on the trestle, and then it was unloaded either left or right. What happened in this case, uh, Stana was on the wrong side. Whenever the dump car unloaded, it unloaded on top of him. Uh, now, we're told that they were like 16-yard dump cars. If you take one yard of clay, which we know to be the, the cargo in this case, that weighs about a ton and a half. So if you, even if it wasn't a full car, we can f- come to the conclusion there was an awful lot of uh, clay that was actually dumped on top of him and oh pushed him ultimately into the lake. And that really is what happened. Um, Later, whenever the examination was done, they came to no conclusion or no recommendations. An inquest today would find a cause, put in place regulations, and develop uh, a protocol that there would be no future occurrences. So the site was really just an accident waiting to happen, and apparently there was no system in place to ensure the discharge always happened as it was expected. So I guess just the safety regulations and occupational health and safety regulations just weren't put in place that there could have been a, a proper investigation maybe and proper recommendations didn't come out of it, it seems like. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, this could have been avoided in so many ways. Even it boiled down to that they just sent changed the direction of the dump car. If they made dump cars that they only went on one side then they could have turned them around and pushed them the other way for the other side. There's absolutely no reason why just general protocol could have avoided this accident. So uh, it, it's just one of those tragic things. The first victim of the Welland Ship Canal construction was a local man named William Burt of Porto Luzi. He died on June 15, 1914. William was a watchman on the Dredge Delver. Dredges were used for underwater excavation, moving sand, mud, and rock that would be used in the canal's construction, whether it was building up the sides of the canal, creating artificial harbors, 
as well as to infill. The sand was also used to make the cement needed for construction. It was a very important job. William Burt died when the dredge delver capsized. Listen to this reading of a newspaper article detailing the accident. The St. Catherine Standard, June 15, 1914. Our large dredge, the Dominion, was badly buffeted by the waves. The dredge Delver, one of the fleet of dredges owned by the Dominion Dredging Company, contractors on Section 1 of the new ship canal, used in making a harbor at Port Weller, capsized and sank outside the harbor at Port Dalhousie, for which place the tug Alice was endeavoring to tow her to safety from a storm which sprang up at 11 o'clock Monday night. Ten members of the crew of 18 were rescued by the tugs Alice and Meteor. One man, William Burt, of Port Dalhousie, married, is known to have drowned. The tug Meteor had endeavored to escort a large dredge, the Dominion, from Port Weller to Port Dalhousie, which is a distance of about three miles. But the heavy seas parted the lines and caused the big craft to drift shoreward. When shallow water was reached, the crew of the Dominion dropped the anchors. She was badly buffeted by the waves, but all the crew are safe. Her damage cannot be estimated yet. The meteor, when the Dominion broke loose, hurried to help the Alice in rescuing the crew of the Delver. The Delver, which sank, was valued at $100,000. Captain John Howe of the tug Alice gave the standard the following account of the disaster. It was blowing very hard and making a big sea at 8 o'clock when we left Port Weller to run with the dredge and the full scow for shelter at Port Dalhousie. Naturally, our program with the heavy dredge in the rough sea was slow. At about 9 o'clock, the fuel scow turned over and was promptly cut adrift. We towed the dredge up to within a quarter of a mile of the piers. The sea was running high and she shipped a great deal of water. It is possible to that in being buffeted about the scow may have put a hole in her. Anyway, almost without warning, she sank in about 80 feet of water. I at once cut the tow line and cruised around to rescue the crew. The men knew of their danger before the dredge went down and had the good sense to provide themselves life belts, and as soon as they were in the water they grasped wreckage and clung to that until we picked them up. The meteor, too, was on the job and picked up five of the men. She had been coming up with the dredge dominion, dropped her anchors, and she rode out of the storm safely. The crew of the Alice worked like heroes and rescued seven men of the Delver. We all shared up our dry clothes with them and made them as comfortable as possible. The crew of the Delver consisted of Captain James Gamble, James MacDonald, second engineer, Oliver Carver, second cranesman, Frank Scarry, oiler, William Hogan, fireman, Phil Arsenault and Joseph Clavett, deckhands, Charles Cameron, cook, William Hemphill, inspector, Lewis Buck, watchman of the fuel scow, Arthur Whitmer of the scow, and William Burt, the drowned man, who was employed as a watchman. In conversation with the crew of the dredge, the standard learned that the men had several minutes' warning of impending disaster and promptly provided themselves with life belts. One of the men said he was under the impression that Bert went below to see to the fires, but another said he saw him in the deckhouse. As soon as the dredge settled and sunk, the pressure of air tore away all the deck fixtures, and with all of these dashing about, with the force of waves, it is remarkable that many of the men were not seriously hurt. As it was, 
a number of them were more or less cut and bruised when they got ashore, and the services of Dr. Atkinson were required to attend to them. However, they are all right today and thankful that they escaped as luckily as they did. The Alice, as soon as the dredge went down, blew loudly for assistance. The crew of the Alice consisted of Captain Howe, Engineer William Wright, Second Engineer Leo Wright, Firemen Pearson and Carr, Deckhands William Kane and William Rooney, and John Dowd Cook. All these men did excellent service in saving life. The same applies to Captain McGrath and the men of the Meteor. Bert, the man who lost his life, was a resident of Port Dalhousie and lived with his wife and two children on Queen Street. He was 37 years of age. As soon as the people of Port learned from the signals of distress that there was danger on the lake, the whole village turned out. The waves were dashing over the piers, but in spite of this, many of the hardy ones ventured out. This morning, for half a mile east of the pier, the coast is strewn with wreckage from the dredged sections of the deckhouse, bedding, trunks, and are piled up in indiscriminate heaps. Yesterday was payday, and several of the men had their money in their trunks. These, in most cases, were smashed open, and the money was lost. One man was fortunate enough to find his envelope, with its contents water-soaked, but safe. The big dredge can be seen quite plainly from the piers. Her deck is sticking out plainly over the water. She sank in about 30 feet. Men who know say that it should not be a very big job to raise her. Des, what was the concern for worker safety at the time of this accident? There, there was some concern for worker safety, unlike in the case of Benasho, this looks at least they were some concern. Uh, it was reported that the, the dredge, they were called to the deck and they were supposed to put on their life uh, jackets and that is a step at least in the right direction. Um, we, there was no uh, autopsy, so we don't really know whether William Burt died bef before he, the dredge sank or whether it sank with him on it and he, he just died from, from drowning. That's part of it. But in their own defense, if you want to look at that um, and you give them full credit, the fact that there were life jackets on board, uh, that can be explained or that can be at least thought out that this dredge actually sank before it ever came to Port Weller. It sank off uh, St. Andrews, New Brunswick. So it had been in the water, it was raised, it came here. And then if you think of overall world history, in 1912 was the Titanic uh, disaster. So if you put the two together, there could be some thought that perhaps the company involved were at least thinking safety and water safety was had at least gained worldwide uh, attention, the fact of Titanic. Whenever we're talking about that, it's just an interesting aside with the Delver because that dredge actually had a cloud that seemed to follow it. The fact that it already sank before it came here, it came here then in 1914, it sank again. It was raised in December of 1914, put back in service, and if you fast forward to October 6, 1915, another crew member, uh, a young man called Albert Wellard, disappeared. Now, he was uh, actually on shore, he was in uh, a yawl going back to the, the dredge, he just disappeared. Like, his body was never found. And apparently it, it, uh, uh, it was only after the monument was built, it was 
dedicated here that there's actually a plaque was put in a graveyard in Toronto where the family, uh, uh, and they were totally thrilled that, that there had been recognition. His body never was found. And so his death was um, associated with the Delver also? He, well, he was actually a crewman on the Delver, oh, okay. and he had gone ashore. He was on his way back to it. This was 8.30 at night, uh, dusk at the time, and uh, he just disappeared. Like They found he was in what they called a yawl. They found it, no markings on it, no water in it. He just had disappeared. So it's, it's like totally a mystery. Like I said, the, the Delver seems to have this cloud that followed it yeah. wherever it went. And on the other side, it, it, we have a picture of it even in the 1950s. So it was still, still being used. Still being used in the canal as late as the 1950s. So like it's, it's one of those yeah, really unusual stories. Interesting, very interesting. For our last story of today's episode, I'd like us now to turn to John William Hawthorne. The tragic accident he was involved in occurred at Lock 3, not far from where we are now recording this podcast. What follows is the newspaper article detailing the accident causing Hawthorne's death, as well as his obituary. The St. Catherine Standard, October 18, 1932. Man killed today on Ship Canal. Struck on the head by a log which had rolled down a 30-foot embankment, John Hawthorne, at Elizabeth and Ontario Streets, was almost instantly killed at Lock 3 on the Welland Ship Canal at 11.20 this morning. Hawthorne died in the ambulance on his way to the General Hospital. William Daniels, at 133 Queen Street, Port Dalhousie, was also struck by the log, but escaped with leg injuries. Five or six other men who were working with Hawthorne and Daniels narrowly escaped serious injury. The men were engaged in putting a sewer in just at the point where the abandoned and the present canals cross. They were working on this bed of the abandoned canal, and on top of the bank was a train with a derrick and flat cars loaded with huge tiles for use in the sewer. In one of the tiles was a log, four feet in length and some two feet in diameter. The log fell off the car, and before it could be stopped, was coming wildly down the slope toward the little group of men at work below. Before they had time to escape, Hawthorne and Daniels were struck. Hawthorne suffered a badly fractured skull and severe brain lacerations. Dr. E.D. Coutts was called, but Hawthorne was beyond human aid. Obituary John W. Hawthorne The late John W. Hawthorne, who was fatally injured on the Welland Ship Canal yesterday, had been a resident of this vicinity for the past 30 years, for many years following the occupation as a sailor on the Great Lakes, but latterly being employed by the government of the canal. He was in his 54th year and was well and favorably known by many friends who will learn of his sudden demise with sincere regret. He was a valued member of the Loyal Order of Moose Lodge, number 936 of this city, under whose auspices the funeral will be held. To mourn his passing, he leaves his sorrowing wife, one daughter, Irene, and one son, George, at home, three sisters, Mrs. Smith and Miss Emma Hawthorne of Acton, and Mrs. William McLeod of Toronto, and one brother, George, of Kitchener, also survive. 
The funeral will take place on Friday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. from the family residence at 132 Ontario Street to Victoria Lawn Cemetery, where internment will take place. Des, what can you say about the death of John William Hawthorne? And this is another case of no site safety precautions or any concern for the actual workmen themselves. John William was working in a ditch 30 feet deep. That's a pretty deep ditch. And uh, above him, up and on ground level, was a train flat car being unloaded. Now, apparently a small log, and I'm talking small, something like uh, four feet by two feet. Now, that doesn't sound very big. Let's just put that in perspective. If you think of a man today, a six-foot man, and with a 40-foot waist, it would, it was only four feet long, so it would only be as tall, slightly above the man's waist, and it would be half the size uh, of the man. If you want to talk about a baseball bat, the average baseball bat is actually 34 inches, the longest is 42. So this piece of wood was that small, falling down uh, into the, the ditch where uh, uh, John William was working. So it was a pretty small thing. I, the people at the top apparently yelled that it was falling. He dived into what he thought was, was a, a, a little indent. And unfortunately, just enough of his head stuck above it that that's what hit him and killed him. Now, obviously no safety rails, but the single biggest issue here is no safety hats. If you think about that, Safety hats weren't uh, in use back in 1930. Uh, from what we can find, they were really only came into being the first time in a major uh, construction was the Boulder Dam in 1931. So had he had a safety helmet, a hard hat on, a good probability that, that he would have survived. If you look at the whole picture, all 137, there are 10 listed where they died from skull fractures. There's another five who died from uh, skull fractures and other injuries in the upper body. So had safety helmets been available and used, I'm sure some of those men would have survived just, just based on, on straight fact that the numbers that uh, thing on your head protects your head and uh, they didn't exist back then. Yeah, so these could have been entirely avoidable deaths if they just wore the right, uh, you if, know. If they had a hat, a hat in the first place, that would have and yeah. had to be some of those cases where it, it would have uh, mm -hmm. not been the tragedy that they turned out to be. Exactly, especially someone like John William Hawthorne. If uh, the log that killed him was relatively small, right? Yeah, very. I mean, really, not much bigger than a baseball bat. Mm -hmm. But would it have been the, I don't know, the velocity of which it was falling at? It had to be. I mean, yeah. that was certainly a factor. Uh, the, the, the bigger the, the drop, the, the, the heavier the hit. By the same token, if it just grazed the top of his head mm -hmm. and he had, had a heart, it could have deflected and, and he could have been totally fine. If we can Absolutely. go on speculate about all of them, but the fact is, Safety helmets were not mandatory, weren't even thought about in most cases, mm -hmm. and uh, 
and that's just another unfortunate thing. And now the rules are completely different where we know all construction sites, you always need to wear your safety helmet. Not, not, only, not only the workers, but anyone visiting must have just in case mm -hmm. anything in the air can, can mm -hmm. uh, fall or hit or, yeah. Mm -hmm. Des, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to speak about the dangerous working conditions men face during the construction of the Welland Canal. It is important for us to consider just how different the culture of workplace safety was in the 1930s compared to today. It is precisely because of the tragedies on large-scale construction projects like the Welland Ship Canal that brought forward legislation, procedures, and policies we have for work sites today. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Sarah Nixon, with special thanks to Des Corin for sharing his research and knowledge. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Mellon Canal Center and the City of St. Catharines.